Our sermon text this evening comes from Matthew chapter 2, the visit of the Magi, verses 1 to 12 is our focus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for this child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. After that, they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. This account that you heard from the Gospel of Matthew, it really sticks out like a hair that's going the wrong way when you get up in the morning and look in the mirror. It really sticks out because he writes about an account. Well, let me start here. The book of Matthew, uh, Matthew is a tax collector and inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes down the account of Jesus' life. And as he writes down the account of Jesus' life, he does it with a specific audience in mind. For sure, the whole world would hear this story, but he had a specific audience that he is trying to show the evidence of the Messiah and convince them that this is the Messiah and his audience is the Jewish people. Matthew himself was a Jew and he had this heart, this desire to get the news out to his people that all of their Old Testament scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament today, all of their scriptures was pointing ahead to a Messiah, and that Messiah wasn't a mystery anymore. When Jesus of Nazareth appeared, that Messiah in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ was fulfilled. And so in Matthew, you have um, more Old Testament quotes than any other gospel. You have more pointing to, look at what the prophet said, look at what the teaching said, and look how Jesus fulfilled it than any other book. And so you, you keep in mind their audience that is being written to in, in the book of Matthew. And then when you start to read Matthew, even in chapter one, if you wanted to turn there, you can. In chapter 1a, there's a long lineage of the family line of Jesus. And the lineage doesn't go back all the way to Adam like another gospel does. The lineage goes back to guess who? Abraham. Why Abraham? Because Abraham is the father of the Jews, right? And again, he's trying to make the connection for them that the Messiah came from Abraham's line, that he is the one that is fulfilling this great promise to Abraham and throughout the years. And so you have all these names, long list of names of people that you could never pronounce. <laughs> or if you tried, it would be really a mouthful if you tried to. And then after that, he goes into chapter 1b. I'm giving you the run-up to the, what we just heard. And it's a story about um, a Jewish man 
a pious Jewish man who was devout in his religion, and he was so pious in his religion and so thinking about other people in love that when his girlfriend becomes pregnant out of wedlock, that he says, you know what, I know the law and I know that the harsh penalty is gonna come on her if people find out I'm gonna divorce her quietly and start all over. And up to this point, this is a very Jewish story. Well, sort of, I'll get to that in a second. Two things we can learn about Matthew right away is number one, this is an extremely credible account starting at the very beginning because he names names. You see, today, when we write scholarly papers, maybe some of you had to write papers last semester, or maybe you have a big paper due at the end of this semester, if you're a student. You know that you have to cite your sources, right? You gotta put them in the footnotes. And it's tedious work to get that all right, but you have to do that to show that your work is credible. Well, back then, when you look at through long lineages, like Matthew puts forth, that was their way of citing sources. Because when people would say, well, is this made up or is this real? In the first century AD, people could look at that list of names and the people at the end of that list were still alive. You could go to your neighbor, Natan, or something like that, and you could say, Natan, is it true that your uncle was Joseph? And he could say, indeed. And Joseph's father is Eliezer, and Eliezer's father is uh, Akim, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and you could, you, you, could, you could see how he's naming names. He's also not leaving out inconvenient truths because being pregnant out of wedlock back then and in that culture was very different than being um, pregnant today out of wedlock. In the shame culture of the Jewish um, community, that person would be ostracized that would get um, pregnant outside of marriage. And you weren't going back then and taking pictures of your baby bump. You weren't posting the pregnancy test to Instagram unless you were married. So Matthew is writing an extremely credible um, account, and he's also careful not to leave out the details, even the inconvenient details. And you know, if you watch, I don't know, detective shows, that the, the detective says, if their story is too general without details, it's not credible. Or they'll say something to the effect of, um, you know, if their story is too perfect, then that's not credible as well. In Matthew, and in the account we're about to read, or we have read, you're gonna find that Matthew doesn't leave out inconvenient details, and the details he does include rocks the world of his audience. And I think chapter two shows you this, that it rocks their world, because the people that enter into chapter two, their character, their distance that they came, the reason that they came, it shook up all the city of Jerusalem, and it made a king very, very angry. And I want you to have that feeling, not anger, don't be angry. I want you to have that feeling this evening when you read this account that this shakes up your world. You may be Jewish, you may be, I'm guessing many of you here tonight are Gentile. Um, these words are going across the airwaves, but whether you're Jew or Gentile, new to the faith, or you've been in the faith a long time, let the visit of the Magi rock your world in two ways. We're gonna talk about this. The first way that it rocks our world is that it will, should rock your world to bring you into a closer worship of Christ. How does this account that we read bring us into a closer worship and a deeper worship of Christ? The first way that it does that is this. See the great length God goes to bring these people close to him. So you heard that these people were from the east, right? 
And to us, I don't know. I don't know any states besides Texas. Is there a state next to Texas that's to the east? You think East Texas, right? But in, um, back then, when, when they said the east, it could be a number of different countries. Maybe it was perhaps, and very likely from the historical evidence that we have, a Persian um, kind of empire, Babylonian kind of background empire, and that these people traveled a long, long distance. The people, the scholars say that they probably came from somewhere like uh, eastern Iran or even Turkey or some kind of far out land back then, and they traveled a long way. Just as an experiment last night, I googled the easternmost or the, yeah, the easternmost place in Iran, and it takes like 400 hours to walk from Iran to Israel, and there's a lot of closed roads and roads they tell you not to go down, but think about that. If it takes you that long to walk constantly, days on end, and then, then they're bringing, it seems like, gifts along with them. The travel wasn't easy. They came a long way, and they walked a long way to get to where they wanted to be. The worship of a stranger. Now, I don't know about you, I'm going on a trip this week. It's gonna take 10 hours in a car, air conditioned, or I guess heated car. And I'm going there because I love the people on the other side, I know the people, they're family. How many of you would travel two days in a car to visit somebody that you have never met or never even talked on the internet over before? they have to be coming from a long distance. And when they do come from a long distance, you have to scratch your head and say, how do they know that at the other end, they're gonna have a fulfilling experience of worship? And the answer is, is that God went to a great length to bring these worshipers to the Christ child, and this is how he did it. He did it over 700 years before this. God put into plan of action something that would bring them close to him. And he did it in a way that you and I would never guess. He did it through the scattering of the Jewish people. It's called the Diaspora, and it happened around 733 BC, when, as a consequence of their sin, God allowed invading countries from, guess where, the east, to come in and crush them. And it hurt because they sacked the temple, their valuable place of worship. Um, they took all the things from Jerusalem that had value, and they took them back. And part of their strategy for invading was taking the leading minds of the people in every city, every major city like Jerusalem, like the Nobel laureates or your, 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 your professors, your top high priests and thinkers, they would take that and they would strip that. Two things that that would do is it would defeat that city even more so that it couldn't rise up, but then it would also help them in their home country. It would help them advance in technology. It would help them advance in culture by having these brilliant minds being put into key positions. I'm describing a story in the Bible from the Old Testament. Do you know what account I am describing right now and who? Yeah, say it out loud. Daniel, I like that name. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. These are some of the people that were taken away from Jerusalem and placed in Babylon. And guess what? They were raised in the courts of the Persians and the Medes, and they were, and Daniel and his friends, it said, they ascended to the highest ranks faster than anybody else because God put his blessing on them. And of course, they started to worship all the gods there, right? Wrong, right? They didn't. In fact, they went to, into the fire because they said, and they made a public stance, and they said, our God is the Lord God, and God can give us wisdom, and he has. 
and God has given us faith and we are going to live it out in this dark place. And that account of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that would be told to all of these other people that are spread out across the world. So guess what? Their faith is bold. Their faith is encouraged and spurred on so that when they're in their synagogues, and that's what created, that's what created outside of the, uh, the, the state of Israel at that time, what was created were little synagogues everywhere and everybody practiced their faith there. So, when we learn in the book of Daniel that Daniel became the head of the Magoi, which is a transliteration into English from Hebrew that we say Magi, he was actually put in charge of, he was chief of all of this sect of um, leading thinkers called the Magi, and he shared his faith with them. Now, I'm describing this in long form because I want you to see the length that God goes to bring people close to him. You can imagine that these wise men that came had Daniel's prophecies in their mind. Maybe prophecies that we don't have anymore. Maybe things he's told them about a star. Maybe there's uh, a revelation that Daniel brought to them. Or, or maybe that Daniel said, look at the Old Testament scriptures. And so they, they know and they have an idea about this Lord God of Israel. So when the star appears and they know that they can go and worship this king, they're excited and they go off to worship him. Now, the application for this is you and I have come a long way, whether you believe it or not, to be sitting in a pew here, if you're live or online, to hear the word of God. Because that message of Daniel, the promise of the Messiah, it hasn't just gone to Israel or it hasn't just gone outside of Israel to the east. It's come all the way here to Austin, Texas. And some of you sitting out there and on maybe over the screen, when you would have a childhood friend that would say, really, that person is listening to the gospel? That person is going to church? And they might laugh and you might laugh and you might say, yeah, but you know what? God has come a long way to bring me to where I am today. And for you that have been in the faith or maybe been in the church for a long time, the same is true for you. God has come a long way in the struggles in your life. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's been a big event that's shaken up your life. Maybe it's an event that is a health concern or maybe it's an event that's a money concern and God has brought you a long way. Maybe he's formed you through all of that stuff to bring you here tonight or to hear this message for you to know that he goes to a great length to keep you close to him, close to his word. So I pray that that brings you into a closer worship of him to think about the journey that he brought the wise men to see and to worship this king over hundreds of years and maybe your life is even being upset or maybe other people's lives are being upset but God is working through it all for his plan to bring the gospel to many more people. So number one, see the great lengths God goes to bring people close to him. Think about Daniel, 700 years before these wise men came to visit. The second thing that brings you into closer worship to him is the character of these guys. They look nice on a manger scene. And their story is great. Lots of stories have been made up outside of the Bible about them, even given names to them. Some people have said that there's three of them specifically, speculation. But to get to know these guys should make you a little bit uncomfortable. I'll tell you why. The Greek philosopher, well, I'm sorry, the Greek historian Herodotus, the father of history, he writes about them that they were, um, they were from a 
tribe of the Medes named the Magoi, who were like Old Testament priests, except for their religion. And he also refers to them as philosophoi, which we get our, our word what? Philosophy, that means they loved wisdom. They loved biology, they loved theology, and um, a friend of mine who is a pastor in South Austin has written extensively on them and done some scholarly writing about them, and he says that today they would be like a moral biologist, if there is such a thing. That means that they loved science. They loved biology, they loved to think. But here's the, here's the thing about it, they didn't separate that from their spiritual life. They applied everything that they learned and said, how is, this, how is this helping the human spirit? It's kind of strange because in our universities today, we have what, like the theology department over here, and we have the biology department over here, and we have philosophy over here, but they kind of put them all together. And in a sense, they, were, they had a, a kind of a, a, a sect of leaders that was different than what we have today. They were like a religious leader of their time. And here's really what makes it uncomfortable is that part of their science was the dark arts. And Philo of Alexander, who was a contemporary of Jesus, he wrote about them, extra biblical, he says about them that they were like, um, they liked to use the same magic as the Egyptian sorcerers who imitated Moses and Aaron's miracles. Um, he refers to them as pharmacoietes, which we get our pharmacy from, that would use the dark arts to cast spells on other people. They weren't liked in the neighborhood too well. They, they used the same kind of art as Balaam in the Old Testament, who, he speculated, this is Philo, who, who speculated that he used artificial divination. And Luke, in Acts chapter 8, says that um, he uses the same word for maguo, magi, to describe a sorcerer who tried to deter people from hearing the message of the gospel. Now, does this make you uncomfortable? That these characters came to worship the Christ? A little bit? Does it make you uncomfortable that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God goes on, on and on and on and saying, don't get involved with sorcery, don't get involved with the dark arts? He does. It was wrong. Now imagine being a good, pious woman or a good, pious man in Jerusalem and all of a sudden, walking in out of nowhere, these magi. It's not a good stigma. People would turn away from them. People would stare at them. And my same friend that writes extensively about the magi said that in Jesus' day, in Jesus' ministry, they would have been described, no doubt, as sinners, in that category of sinners. Not just because of the fact that they're Gentile, but the fact that of their work. Their work was shady. And yet they come and they worship the king. So when I, asked, when I told you before, Matthew is writing to the Jewish people, but he's also not leaving out any details. The King James Version says this, it didn't say it in the reading that we heard this evening, but the King James uh, reflects the Greek even better. It says, behold, magi from the east, behold. That's kind of like the moment of the gospel that he says, this isn't normal. And the people reading it probably said, this isn't normal. It shouldn't feel normal because that's the shocking news about the gospel. Would you be shocked, appalled, a little offended 
on the character of people that would walk through these church doors. Maybe they have a shady sexual history. Or maybe he has a, um, a reputation for being a homebreaker. And they, whoever they are, maybe they don't look like you culturally. Maybe they haven't acted like you historically. And they sit down next to you in the pew and your family. Behold, Magi from the East. I remember I was once in a very uh, monocultural church and, and for many, I don't, I don't know if I saw anybody else besides the kind of people I saw and all of a sudden somebody walked into that church that wasn't like that culture. Behold, Magi from the East on every, the face of everybody. <laughs> we don't have to be afraid because I'll, I'll, I'll push this a little bit farther. They had the stigma of sin attached to them. But very often in church culture, if you've been in it your whole life, you have hidden the stigma of sin. It's still there, trust me. And you can hide behind your culture, you can hide behind your attendance at church, you can hide behind a lot of things. You can be the most upright, pious, religious person. And God still says, Jesus says, that the sin doesn't come from out here, but the sin comes from in here because that's where the thoughts start. And in the little tiny moments of life, not the big Christian moments, like we are having one right now, we're in church, in the little moments, God says, those are the ones that kill you because nobody sees it. And so I'm gonna say this, the wise men were seeking a king like Jesus because Jesus had died and will die and save, save the Magi, sinners like them. I'll say that again. The wise men were searching for a king like Jesus because a king like Jesus was one that would give his life for them. Jesus said in his ministry later on, I haven't come for the healthy, but for the sick. And you and I, and this is getting into the third point about what's bringing us into closer worship with Jesus. It takes courage to do what these magi did. Because what they were doing was they're putting aside all the comforts of their home, they were putting it all away, they were going to a land that they didn't know, into a culture that wouldn't accept them. Why? Because there was something that transcended the culture. There was something that transcended their stigma, and that was that there was a savior there. And you and I have to be bold, like them, to get the reason why God brought them close. You won't get close to God unless you realize that you are the Magi, that we are the ones that fall short of the glory of God. And, and you can think through your life and say, and, and surrender and say, listen, I'm not my own king. And really, this is, this, is, this is Herod. You know, you heard about Herod in this text? I know we're going deep into history tonight, and, but I love it, uh, not this part about it. Herod later on would kill all the babies two years and younger, and, and, uh, younger because the wise men didn't go back to him and tell him where the baby was so he could kill him. That was his intent when he said, I wanna go worship him. Herod had a history of this. Same historians that I, that I was referring to before wrote about this Herod this way. They said that at the end of his life, this is just a character sketch of him, at the end of his life, he knew that all of Jerusalem would just throw this huge party when he died, right? Because they hated him. 
all the Jews were going to throw a party. And so he got his sister. He told his sister, I want you to take all of the uh, beloved teachers of the law, all the priests that the people love, and put them all in a room. And when I die, lock that room with all of them in there. You can pretend like it's a party. And then when I die, set that room on fire. Why? Because he wanted all of Jerusalem to mourn with him during his death. See how terrible that is? But you hear about this here in, in Herod, it says in the text, it says, Herod was really upset, and guess who else was really upset? All of Jerusalem with him, and they had good reason to be, because when he was upset, ain't nobody happy. But he has made himself into a monster. Why has he made himself into a monster? He never had the courage to say, there might be somebody outside of me, a Messiah and a king that I need. I am my own king. I need to protect my world. I need to set up boundaries and barriers. and I need to hurt other people to protect myself. Do you see what monster sin makes of us? If we, if we don't have the courage to say, I surrender and I'm sinful and I need King Jesus in my life, we, can hurt, we hurt other people. We hurt other people. Our world around us is miserable. And in a sense, we get a foretaste of the hell that awaits us because we have isolated ourselves from God. And my prayer is, is that you, 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 don't, you don't live out of fear of that, but you live now because you know and you see the Christ that you, that you live in deeper worship of him because he's, he's rescued you from yourself. And it's interesting, they come looking for the king of the Jews no less than 33 years later. Another king would put this baby, now a man, on trial. He was a Gentile king. And you know what? The Jewish people brought him to him and they said, crucify him, crucify him. And this king brought him in and he, he, he investigated and he asked questions and he found out that throughout all of his questions, this man was innocent. He hadn't done anything wrong. And yet this Gentile king, still influenced by the people, condemned him to death, but not with a clean conscience. He washed his hands and then he ordered that a sign be put over that cross that Jesus died on, and do you remember what was on that sign? Jesus of Nazareth, what? King of the Jews, Jews, written in Greek, written in Aramaic, and written in Latin. Language that the whole world could read. Far East people, Far West people, people right there, people passing through Jerusalem, that Gentile king, he was conflicted in his spirit when he did this, but he did it as a statement because the Jewish people said, take that down, he's not our king. He says, "Uh, mm -mm. this is the king. And in that moment, you might think, well, shouldn't a king be ruling on a throne? Shouldn't a king be ruling in power? But guess what? Jesus' kingdom, his power comes from the sacrifice that he made on that cross. And there you can go and worship the King Jesus and say, now that is the king that has made me who I am, a forgiven child of God, that, that um, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's true for you if you're a magi with a stigma attached to you. And that's true for you if you're doing a really good job as a magi, hiding, hiding the stigma too. You are forgiven forever for free, and that's by grace, a gift of God. So worship King Jesus. Let the story of the Magi bring you into deeper worship because they get it and now you get it. And that's gonna lead to the last part tonight. That this closer worship of Jesus will change you because it will embolden your faith. 
in ways that you have never been emboldened before. Because when you know that eternity is yours and you have life with God forever, it should embolden you like those magi, not to go back to Herod, something that is easy to do. But they took a hard road and they risked their lives. God knows what would have happened to them if they got caught. But they left by another route. You can forward the slides a couple. They left by another route after leaving gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So let the, their story make you live a bolder life in faith in Christ. They brought gifts, and the gifts were strange gifts for a baby. I mean, you don't usually get gold and frankincense and myrrh at a baby shower, but they showered Jesus with these gifts because this is, these are the gifts that they had. And these are the gifts that they wanted to give, gold that would sustain the family through this harsh journey that they were about to go on to avoid Herod's decree. Um, frankincense, which was used in temple worship, maybe even their old temple worship, that would fill the space with beautiful scents. And myrrh that would be used, well, maybe significant of, some, some commentators say, of the burial that Jesus would one day undergo. They were gifts and they were beautiful gifts. They were strange gifts for sure. But the point of their gifts is this, is that out of faith they gave them. Out of faith. It says they bowed down and they, they, they bowed down to the ground and they said, King Jesus, you are my king. There's nothing in this world that I could give you that, that, you, that you haven't given to me. And so take the things that I have because my life depends completely on you. And so when you come to worship, and we do it formally in an offering. But really your whole life, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, it's an offering back to God. And it's not about whether you give 50 cents or whether you give $500. It's not whether you volunteer a little bit or you volunteer a lot. It's all, he says, an attitude of worship in the heart. So I challenge you to be more bold in your time and your talents and your abilities. Be more bold because of the heart that has changed inside of you. The heart that they bring to worship in the baby Jesus. Okay, and the, the, now go to the next slide. <clears throat> the final thing that I wanna just remind you to embolden your faith with is, is the journey that they took back, which they did and risked their lives. They took the difficult road back, and when they take the difficult road back, they do everything they can because they do it out of love for that Savior that would one day die for their sins. There are a lot of easy roads in Christianity, and we live in one of the countries <clears throat> in history, in all of history, that has given a lot of religious freedom for us to worship as freely as we do here. You can still even put out a nativity scene in your front yard without your house being burnt down. We don't exactly have Herod's breathing down our neck because we go and we worship King Jesus, but very often we fall into this comfortable Christianity, I, I, and I'm worried that it happens often in America that uh, that, that we want to hold on to faith, but at the same time, we never want any suffering that goes along with it. If your life is so comfortable all the time because your faith is so isolated all the time, I challenge you to take that next step to get more bold. In your home, perhaps, in your community, in your work, and in your school. All of those have their own challenges. If it's at work and and if, if, if it's the challenge to not go along with the status quo that the Bible tells you not to go along with, but to be a hair that sticks out and to do things the way that God asks you to do, it's doing that. If it's knowing that you have a loved one that needs to be around the word of God and you could 
isolate that relationship, or maybe you put that, that relationship, it could, it could harm that relationship if you, if you would invite them to say, come to church or to do, to do a Bible study with you, then take a risk this year. Take the more difficult path instead of the easy path because if Christianity is comfortable all the time, well, that's, that doesn't feel like you're really there with Jesus, but you are there with Jesus. When you do fail, he still forgives you. If it's at school and it's time to speak up for the truth or it's time to say no to the things that you should say no to and say yes to the things you should say yes to because your conscience is bound here by the word of God, then take a bold stand on that. And don't be afraid of the journey back because guess what? Herod might hurt you, but God loves you. God loves you. And King Jesus has given his life for you so nothing worse can happen to you even when you live a bolder faith. And I encourage you to do that, to take the more difficult route instead of the easier route because Jesus has taken the most difficult route for you. He's given his life to you so that nothing can be taken away from you. So, in conclusion, what rocks your world? Is it a triple overtime win? Is it, I don't know, that guy or that girl texting you back and saying that they wanna go out with you? Does that rock your world? A new baby in the family, does that rock your world? A paycheck that has a bonus on it this time of year, does that rock your world? All of those may rock your world, but the one thing that changes your world and rocks your world in eternity is that you have a king, and that king is Jesus. So have your world rocked by the visit of the Magi in a deeper worship of Christ and in bolder faith from now and into eternity. Amen.